welcome to our service today and thank you for joining us those of you watching online and those of you here in our sanctuary it is great to have you with us today today is a very special day in the life of our church at the beginning of january 1999 our church rented office space and started planning our first service we had a couple of trial runs in march of 99 but our first public worship service was on March 21st, 1999, exactly 22 years ago today. And so we count March 21st, uh, 99 as our birthday. So you're here on a special day for us. And as Pastor Sonny will mention uh, later in the service, we'll have some cake outside and things like that when you leave today. But thank you for being with us this morning. And speaking of special days, uh, two weeks from today, as Marie mentioned, is Easter Sunday, and we expect that that will be a day when a number of people who've not been coming uh, in person will probably come back, and so we're going to have three services on Easter Sunday, one at 8, one at 9.15, one at 11, and if you want to avoid uh, crowds as much as possible, you might choose the 8 o'clock service. I suspect that would be the, the slimmest crowd that day. We will have children's ministry at 9.15 and 11. And as some of you know, we're presently only having it at 11. So if you'd like an opportunity to serve that would really help our church serving in Noah's Ark or, Kid, or Kids Rock at 9.15 that day would be great. But especially be thinking about somebody you could invite to join you, whether you come in person or you simply invite them to, to watch our service online. Think of someone you know who's not part of another church because Easter Sunday is perhaps the best Sunday morning of the year on which to invite a person who doesn't typically go to church anywhere. People are far more open to engaging with the church service on Easter Sunday. So keep that in mind, please, if you would. And now would you join me as we, we pray once more and get into God's Word. Father, we pray the prayer of Psalm 119 this morning. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law, your scripture, your word. Teach us by your Holy Spirit so that by the end of this service, we will have grown to know you better and love you more. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying the remarkable New Testament book of Romans. Romans has been called the most basic, most comprehensive statement of true Christianity. It was written as a letter by the Apostle Paul to explain in a very logical and systematic way what he refers to as the gospel. And he defines the gospel as the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In the first two chapters of Romans, we saw an emphasis on our, our need before God, our sin, our need for his forgiveness. In chapter three, we saw a very clear explanation of how God provides that forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In chapter four, we saw the importance of embracing what God has done by faith. And in chapter five, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us about the benefits of justification. In the second half of chapter 5 that Justin read just a moment ago, the Apostle Paul is making a comparison 
comparison between the sin that entered the world through Adam and the salvation that's come through Christ. And if you read chapter 5, you'll notice uh, words uh, like much more, how much more, uh, abounding all the more in Christ. He uses these superlative phrases to emphasize the greatness of grace in Christ. But the section of Scripture we're looking at begins with an understanding of what happened with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam is considered the representative head of the human race, and sin entered the world through him. That's what Paul is telling us in Romans 5 and verse 12, the first verse in our section today. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and a few verses later it becomes clear he's talking about Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin entered the human race in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. If you go back and read that account in the book of Genesis chapter 2, God had said to Adam, you can eat of the fruit of any tree in the Garden of Eden, but don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. However, they did not die physically that day. They did not die physically for many years, but they died spiritually. And spiritual death entered the human race. We see it in their first two sons, Cain and Abel, when Cain murders his brother Abel. We see the outworking of that sin far multiplied by Genesis chapter 6 in the days of Noah when the Bible says that the thoughts of everyone's heart were only evil all the time. We see the spread of sin, and sometimes this is referred to as original sin. I remember an examination of an elder uh, years ago. Uh, he was being asked questions, theological questions, in preparation for service as an elder, and was asked the question, what is, what is original sin? And he said, well, that's one you make up yourself. It's one you come up with yourself. Well, in that, in that sense, there is no original, original sin. But original sin is this nature of spiritual death that is spread in the human race. By Adam's sin, Paul will write elsewhere, death passed all, spiritual death. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, for as by a man came death, by a man, and now he's going to refer to Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now just a little side note on this verse. Some have taken this verse and the little phrase that says, in Christ all shall be made alive, to teach a doctrine that's called universalism. Universalism says that everybody will be saved. Everybody ultimately will be saved. Hitler, everybody. Some would say even the devil himself. But that's really taking this isolated phrase out of its larger context. As Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, our section today, it's those who receive the abundance of grace 
and of the gift of righteousness who reign in life through Jesus Christ. The weight of the Bible is very clear that it's all who call on the name of the Lord who will be saved. As Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. person must come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But the point is that Adam's sin affected all those born after Adam. Later, God would give his law to his people, and God's law exposed sin as sin. That's why the Apostle Paul says the law came in to, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law is like a great spotlight that shows us our need. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul writes these words, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have non, not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now when Jesus came, He took the scalpel of the law and cut even more deeply. When He began His preaching, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder the law. But I say to you that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. What's Jesus doing? He's taking the law that's intended to expose sin, and he's addressing those folks who think, Well, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm fine. I've never broken God's law. And he digs more deeply, and he gets to hard intent. Jesus says, you've heard, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. He takes the scalpel of the law and he cuts even more deeply. Why? He's exposing our need. The law prepares us for the gospel. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. It's good and it's holy. But it's inadequate to save. The law merely exposes our need. It exposes our sin. Through Adam's sin, death passed on. The law exposes that. But here's Paul's great point in this part of Romans chapter 5. The grace of God in Jesus Christ superabounds over sin and death. And Paul uses this comparison, this superlative language for the grace of God throughout this chapter. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God. Grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned by that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You may wonder if the unusual title you, you saw on the, the uh, title of the message, Super Abounding Grace, Superabounding is not a word I've ever used before, but, but the, the Greek word that Paul uses in this little passage for abounding has to do with a, a great abundance. But when he gets to verse 20 here and says grace abounded all the more, he puts a little prefix on that word. Uh, it's, it's the Greek word uper, 
we would think of it as super. He's saying God's grace has super abounded over sin and over evil. What Paul's doing in this chapter is he's magnifying the grace of God before God's people. God's grace in Christ is far, far greater than Adam's sin, Adam's fall. Maybe you've, you've wondered about something that I've been asked before, and that is, why did God create Adam, Adam and Eve? Why did he create Adam knowing he would sin? Because surely God knew what was going to happen when he said, don't eat the forbidden fruit. God's all-knowing. He's omniscient, we sometimes say. Why did God create Adam knowing he would sin? The answer, I think, is simply this. To magnify his grace. To magnify his grace. We sang about that in the first song today. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. A believer in Jesus... Somebody who's embraced the gospel, person who is, in Paul's words, justified, a believer in Jesus, is in a far better state than Adam was in the Garden of Eden before he sinned. I want you to think about that for a moment this morning. Sometimes... Uh, I, I, I've heard people say, well, a, a good way to remember the word justified is like this, just as if I'd never sinned. And that is a good, easy way to remember the word, just as if I'd never sinned. But I think that is actually an inadequate definition of the word justified. It's inadequate because it doesn't fully convey all that God has done for us. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, our creator, God, has actually shown his love for us by his self-sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, in a way that could not have been possible had we not fallen in sin. On the screen, you'll see a quote from a, a respected theologian, now long since deceased, named Charles Hodge, who wrote these words, Christ exalts his people to a far higher state of being that our race, if unfallen, could ever have attained. In other words, a believer in Jesus Christ who is united by faith to Christ Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, is in a better state than Adam in the Garden of Eden, even before he sinned. Some people think of, of salvation as, well, it'll be just like going back to the Garden of Eden, but with no sin. Beautiful, perfect place, and certainly was a beautiful, perfect place. But what we see in the writing of the Apostle Paul, in God's super abounding grace is that God unites us with Christ Jesus so that through all of eternity we will be celebrating 
praising his glorious grace. I want you to look at a passage for a moment that comes from the book of Ephesians. And the point I'm trying to make is that through the gospel of Jesus, our capacity to love God and, and relish his glory is greater than if we had never even sinned. Now, Paul's going to say in a few minutes, that does not mean sin more so you can experience grace more. That's not his point. But our joy and gratitude for the grace of God is something that is going to be celebrated by us throughout eternity. Look really carefully at these words and notice as, as I read these aloud, the recurring phrase, with Christ or in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now think about that last phrase for a minute. In the ages to come, when you and I and all believers have been with God in heaven and eternity... Ages to come. God is going to be unfolding to us increasingly the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These little recurring phrases, with him, in him, are spoken of by Paul as he continues in Romans as being united with Christ. And we'll see that in just a moment. But I want to make one final point before we talk about that. And that is that what God's done for us through the gospel doesn't just affect our eternity. Paul's not just talking about what life will be like in the ages to come. He, he's also saying it affects life here and now, right now. When he makes the point that those who have received God's grace can actually reign in life through Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, I think, by, means, by, by indicating this, is indicating that we're not subject to sin. We reign in life through Christ. And you'll see that on the screen in chapter 5 and verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Christ Jesus. Through the one man. Paul's going to make the case that believers are united with Christ. We reign in life through Christ. We're united with him. We see it again in verses 20 and 21, where sin abounded. Grace abounded all the more that we might reign, grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. What Jesus has done affects not only our eternity, but this life. Now, at this point, we're not going to study chapter 6 today. That'll be for, for next week. But Paul's going to begin making the case now that through our union with Christ, through our union with Jesus, 
we can walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 3 reads, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're going to have a baptism in our, our second service today. And uh, the person being baptized will be dipped into the water and then raised up. This is just a, a depiction uh, signifying this burial with Christ, being raised in the likeness of his resurrection, the water signifying the washing away of sin. And Paul says, because we're united with him, we can walk in newness of life. In fact, he says in verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. One day we'll be resurrected in the way Jesus is. Here's the point. As a believer in Jesus, if you've embraced the gospel, you're a justified person. You're now identified with Jesus. You've got a new identity. Your identity is not first and foremost your, your vocation or where you live or your feelings or your political party. Your primary identification is your in Christ identity. And throughout Scripture, we've been given images of being united with Christ. Union with Jesus is not something we, we talk about a lot, but we should. It's something we should think about a lot. Because the Bible now pictures the believer as united with Christ. And before we close this morning, I want to look at just, just a few images the Bible has given us about a, what it means to be in union with Jesus. Because each of these images conveys something to us. It teaches us something about how we should live life here on earth. And Jesus himself gave us... Uh, a, a number of images. The first one comes from John 15. It's uh, the citation is wrong. There's not Romans 15. It's John 15:5, and it's the image of a vine and branches. Jesus said, "I am the vine; you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and he and him, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." You hear, you hear what Jesus is saying? You're joined to me now. Through your faith, you're united to me. And life flows from the vine into the branches. This image speaks of bearing fruit, fruitfulness, among other things. Another image of our union with Christ um, is the image of a body, a human body. This is the image, I think, that's probably used most of all in the New Testament. It's used repeatedly. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul says, he put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You're in Christ. You're part of his body. You're united with Christ. And by the way, in this image of a body, 
you're also united with all other believers in Jesus. A couple of other places real quickly, he uses the body imagery. In Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We're united with him like his body. Like a human body is joined together with the head of the body. We work in sync and step together. What does this image convey to you about Jesus? Well, for one, submissiveness to the head. The head is in charge. He's the Lord. We're the followers. But it also implies connectedness with other members of the body, doesn't it? I think it implies love for one another, uh, service to one another, using our, our gifts for one another. Another picture of union with Jesus, our new identity found in the New Testament, is that of a holy temple. You see this in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints, you're members of the household of God, and you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And now he's going to talk about us as being part of a building. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're part of the house of which Jesus is the cornerstone. You're in union with him. Peter the apostle said, this, said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, the verses you'll see. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What does this image imply? Well, I think it, it implies holiness of life because we are part of a body, a building that is to be a holy temple. Corporately, we're called to holiness individually as temples for the Holy Spirit were called to holy life. Then one last image, and one that I think we most rarely think of as speaking of, of union with Jesus, but one that is very, very significant and important to understand, and that is the image of marriage. The Apostle Paul writes these most interesting words in Ephesians chapter 5. He, he starts off quoting Genesis 2.24, God's foundational statement about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and uh, mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes that from Genesis, just like Jesus does in his teaching on marriage. But here's what he adds, something most most remarkable, Paul says, this mystery is profound. Now, when he uses the word profound here, he uses the Greek word mega. And we know what that means. 
the way we use it in the English. He said, this is a mega mystery. It's as if Paul is saying, this is something I don't fully understand, but the Spirit of God is showing me it's true, it's reality. It is a literally a mega mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our union with Jesus Christ is in some mysterious way reflected in Christian marriage. Now, among other things, this says much to us about the holiness, the sanctity of marriage in God's eyes. But the image, the image of marriage should convey something to us also about our union with Christ. Conveys the great importance of love. Love for the one who first loved us. Faithfulness to the one who sacrificed his life for us. So these are just some of the images of union with Jesus that Paul is teaching us in Romans we need to understand. We've been united with him in a death like his. One day, ultimately, in a resurrection like his, but because of our union with him right now, in this life, we walk in newness of life through our union with him. So as we draw to a close on this passage, first question by way of personal application is this, am I united with Christ? Are you sure that you have embraced the salvation Jesus provided when he died on the cross and bore the judgment for your sins and then was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, have you by faith embraced his saving lordship for the forgiveness of your own sins? Do you know that you're justified? If you are, you are eternally united with Christ. And then secondly, am I living out of my union with Christ? The reason for all these images of union with Jesus Christ that were given in Scripture, that of a vine and the branches, a building being built together for God, a holy temple um, marriage. Reason for these images is to teach us something about living out our relationship with Jesus Christ in this world. We're called to a life of conscious fellowship with Jesus Christ by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So that when we get up in the morning, prepare to go to work or, or, or school or whatever you prepare to do, you're aware you're a temple for God. He's placed his own spirit within you. You're walking with him in newness of life, united with Christ. And in all of eternity, we only what we know now is just a drop in the ocean of understanding about the grace and the glory of God. In the ages to come, God's going to be unfolding for those who are his the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ. I think we, I think we don't comprehend perhaps even 1% the greatness of the love of, of God for his children.
Jesus even spoke in John chapter 17 about his loving us as he loves him, Christ. Hard for me to grasp. But that's what the Son of God, the Savior Jesus, has done for us. And this is why the Apostle Paul uses phrases like, how much more super abounding grace that God has poured out upon us. Let's pray this morning, shall we? Father, we pray now for a greater understanding of your grace and goodness. And I pray for any watching or here in our sanctuary who have never embraced your salvation through Jesus, that you would bring that one today to humble acknowledgement of their sin and to faith in a life-giving, saving relationship with you. For the rest of us, Lord, would you please help us to embrace more fully what you desire us to understand about our union with Jesus, about walking in newness of life. May we give you glory now in Jesus' name. And before I close this prayer, <coughs> remembrance of uh, St. Patrick's Day this week, I want to read to you some words from a prayer that's been called through the years, St. Patrick's Breastplate. And then we'll worship the Lord. I think you'll see some of these words on the screen. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. By invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. I bind this day to me forever by power of faith, Christ's incarnation, his baptism in the Jordan River, his death on the cross for my salvation, his bursting forth from the spice tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of dawn. I bind unto myself today. I bind unto myself today the patriarch's prayers, excuse me, the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. Christ be with me, Christ within me. Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth, the friend and stranger. I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same, the three and one and one and three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit word, praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. Amen.